0: Welcome to Unconscious. This is episode 25 Forest Bathing and Nature Deficit Disorder. Welcome to Unconscious. I'm your host, Liz Cook, functional nutritionist and founder of One Seed Organic Perfumes. Today we're talking with Susan Joquim. Australia's first forest therapy guide accredited with the Japanese International Society of Forest Medicine and the International Nature and Forest Therapy Alliance. In this enlightening and inspiring discussion, we explore how forest bathing can combat loneliness, enhance our immune health, improve our mental health and so much more.
1: When we are removed from nature, it affects our health, both our mental health and our physical health. And if we remove what is innately part of us as a human, as a human race. If we take that away from us, we begin to not see, we we are losing touch with what helped us to evolve. It is our very nature that speaks to this hypothesis that we need to be in close contact with nature.
0: So let's jump in. Susan, I'm so excited about this conversation today because I've been really interested in the research and I guess the practice of of forest therapy for the last couple of years ever since I heard about the term. To be honest, though, (laughs) when I first heard of the term of forest bathing, I I literally thought it was go to the forest and have a bath, you know, like you you see in those beautiful uh, you know, house and garden magazines where people plant a bath in the middle of their few acre forest and that's what i thought it was until i then did some research and found out exactly what it is but for those of us who like me don't really know about forest bathing or forest therapy can you explain a little bit about what it is hi liz thank you for having me yes of course um so forest
1: bathing is essentially the japanese word for shinrin yoku it's the translation of the japanese word shinrin and it was coined in 1982 by uh, Tomohide Akiyama of the Japanese Ministry of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries. So the word shinrin nyoku actually comes from two characters, two, two Japanese characters. And the first, if you look at the kanji characters, uh, the first depicts uh, three, three characters which represent the forest and the second character actually represents bathing. So it's about bathing in the atmosphere of the forest. And there's you know lots of science and research about that, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into later, but that's basically what it is. And the practice was started in 1982 and promoted in Japan in response to a public health crisis of illness caused by overwork and techno stress. And uh, the practice also now in Japan has also of course, economic, cultural and scientific benefits. Uh, and that's more related to maintaining native forests to attract leisure and health tourism, and Japan. And you know, as a result of that, Japan today has sixty-two forest therapy bases. So that's basically it in, uh, in
0: a nutshell. Amazing. And when did we start to see this practice emerging in Australia? In Australia, I would
1: say around two thousand seventeen, when uh, I got you know wind of this practice. And what drew me into it was I was a hiker, and I, you know, had to slow down on occasions when I was out walking with my mom, and that experience that I had of slowing down got me, you know, made me inquire, what is this, what I, what what is this that I'm feeling, uh, that's different to hiking, this slowing down. It, it gave me it gave me different sensations, and it led me to finding out. What is this? Is it mindfulness in, or meditation in a natural environment? And this led me to find out and discover there is actually a practice called Shindin Yoku, which encapsulates this slowing, slowing down and walking through the forest, inhaling the forest air, you know, and have actually nurturing an emotional connection to the landscape and to the forest around me. And that's how I started and I went to Japan and I went to South Korea and bought the practice with me in 2017 to Australia and started practicing as a forest therapy guide and subsequently uh, setting up the International Nature and Forest Therapy Alliance.
0: Beautiful. I love the way you talk about this. I've, I've heard you in other interviews describe walking while forest bathing as kissing the earth with your feet how does forest bathing differ from simply going for a walk in a green space, like you just mentioned, walking with your mom and having to slow down um, and, and exploring what is that all about? How? What's the difference between just walking and forest bathing? So uh, that, that's a good question. And people do ask that. Uh, in
1: fact, um, when we met Greg Hunt at the beginning of 2019, you know, he asked that same question, what is... Forest. How is forest therapy, you know, different to hiking or just walking in the forest, uh, or going for a walk by yourself? And this is where you know the science and the research that supports the practice really answers that question. It is about intentionally slowing down and connecting to nature through our senses. And if you if you consider some of your own walks, Liz, right? Um, and a lot of us do that, when we step out, we're typically connect, still connected to our phones. We might even have music on. And we go with an intention, a purpose of either, you know, meeting a goal of 10,000 steps, a, you know, a day.
0: So true. Or,
1: or taking, you know, we'll stop and taking pictures. And that there's nothing wrong in really taking pictures. But when we are rushing through, we don't really stop and if I may use the term, we don't sm- stop to smell the roses, right? And that's, and that's the different difference with Shinrin Yoku. The intention is to go out to connect with nature through your senses. And if I may, this is actually a quotation which I which I love, which is from King Lee, who's the author of a book called The Art and Science of Forest Bathing. And what he describes Shinrin Yoku as. It says it means bathing in the forest atmosphere or taking in the forest through our senses. This is not an exercise or hiking or jogging. It is simply being in nature, connecting with it through your senses of sight, hearing, taste, smell, and touch. It is like a bridge. By opening our senses, it bridges the gap between us and the natural world.
0: Yeah, I love that. Do you know it makes me think about how we try to reduce um, so many health concepts into a prescriptive way of doing things. For example, the concept of uh, sitting is the new smoking. For example, like. Mm you oh, know have to do 10,000 steps a day there's so many of these we have to we have to meet these goals if you're going to do meditation you have to use this practice or mindfulness you have to use this app or we've we seem to have forgotten how to just simply be and how to connect and use everything that already exists in nature to Make ourselves well again in so many ways. And it makes me think about this concept of what you're saying about slowing down and being deliberate and engaging all of the senses as being uh, a concept that we're perhaps not comfortable with because we always think about aspects of wellness as achieving certain goals. Like you said, 10,000 steps, for example, or I need to lose weight. But there's so much in what you've just said um, that can get us well again. And I'm interested to know a little bit more about the science of connection. So, for example, when we are stopping and looking at blades of grass and crushing leaves in our hands, what happens within our bodies or minds that's different than when we're just simply walking the dog or Walking to grab a coffee or just taking a half hour walk?
1: Going back to the science again, Liz, um, the practice of forest therapy is very well uh, supported by three, I would call research hypotheses, and um, uh, I would also call them research um, theories. And one of those, Early theories and hypotheses is, is what we call the biophilia hypothesis. Yeah. the other one is the attention restoration theory and the stress reduction theory. And it goes it, it, it speaks to our innate need to stay connected to nature. Uh, it also speaks to the restorative impact being in nature has on us and the stress reduction effects that nature connection and particularly intentional connection with nature through, the, through a practice like forest therapy. So going back to the senses, when we look at nature and in a green space, our, our sense of sight lights up. It lights up and it also quietens us. When we smell or when we touch a herb or an aromatic plant, the pathway of smelling has a direct connection to our brain, which has this calming effect. When we taste something from nature, whether a raindrop, it has an immediate calming effect on our on our on our health and our body. It's that relaxation, and all of these what I'm. What I'm describing as what may sound as a very simple activity when we are out in nature has these immense benefits which are supported by the science and evidence. When we walk on the earth with bare feet, not with shoes, with bare feet, grounding, there's a science behind the benefits of grounding, of earthing, that has amazing benefits. When we smell earth, when, you know, how often have we? picked up a a pile of sand and smelled it. You know, we used to do this as kids. Yeah, so true. There's microorganisms that are beneficial to our health when we smell the earth. So now you, you, you can sort of get a sense of how this differs to walking without this paying attention, practicing effortless attention, stopping, really immersing, really using all of our senses to connect with nature. I hope that answers your question.
0: It does, and it makes me think too, you've referred back to kids picking up handfuls of dirt and smelling it, but you know just even the perspective of children, if you take a child to a park or to a forest they tend to be up and down and up and down at different levels they're on their backs they're rolling down a hill they're inspecting bugs close to the ground and and even that in itself if we as adults can get back to that original curiosity about nature and just getting that different perspective you know getting getting on the ground and looking at these micro worlds that exist that we pass by every day that in itself i think is is a level of of therapy, isn't it? Nature therapy of some sort.
1: It definitely is, and this is what I tell my forest therapy guides: if you want to, if you want to be a good guide, go out and watch children how they how they behave in nature. And I did this um, about two years ago. I was invited by the Cumberland Council for their annual cherry blossom festival, which unfortunately they have not been able to have since uh, 2019. Uh, I was asked to. Do some forest therapy for for children, toddlers, and it's really because I had never done this thing before. Yeah, and I was like, okay, um, let's do this. And I thought, I, what I told the organizers is, we're not going to call it forest therapy. We're going to call it nature play. Yeah, and and because this aspect of playfulness, I thought, was going to be what's uh, you know what the most important thing because the kids were go- the toddlers were going to be there with. Their mums and dads as well, or some uh, guardian, and and we went with that. And I can tell you, Liz, when I came back, I thought, no, I'm not going to do forest therapy or forest bathing with adults anymore. This is my calling to do this <laughs> with kids because it was so joyful. The yeah. moment they walked into the gardens, they just. Were like why, why you know wild almost it was. and yeah. you know with eyes wide open they rushed up hills no inhibitions mums and dads just stood by and watched and let's kind of let them go and do their thing you know you could see how you know it's amazing thing about how bodies respond to being out in nature you you know there were exposed roots of this beautiful big tree. They immediately rushed on, and there you could see them trying to balance on these big roots, Mm -hmm. rolling. You know, we spoke about this. They they rushed up hills and they rolled down. You know, it was just joyful. So when you see how kids interact with nature, we learn. We really do learn about what it means to be to be really nature connected. Yeah, that's the therapy. You know, we call you know we call it forest therapy. We're not forest therapists. We're actually guides nature and the forest is the therapist
0: that's so true we have so much unlearning to do as adults don't we we, sure we think do. we have it so together but we it's getting back to what's inherent in us and our desire to connect with nature like you say with with no inhibitions mm. I absolutely love that concept, the the biophilia hypothesis that you mentioned before. And um, I love how um, Eric Fromm, who I believe is the original uh, person who proposed this theory in 1973, he describes it as the impulse to love life. Mm. And And your c- quote that I've heard before, you've said, we are from nature, we've forgotten how deeply connected we are and i just think you know in this era of covid and lockdowns and and mandated not leaving your house except for 1 hour a day or whatever it is that's we have such an opportunity here to remember almost on a cellular level who we are and what we come from and get back to nature in a way that heals us revives us Frees us, brings us back to true mindfulness being part of our everyday lives, as opposed to now it's my hour to practice meditation. Mm. It's such an opportunity here. And I, I just hope that we as a society are really grabbing hold of this concept and relearning. And as you say, like with the children, unlearning and, you know, getting back to our roots and to the way that nature intended. But it does surprise me to hear how some academics, when I Google this term, biophilia hypothesis, there are still some academics that are critical of the concept, mm. but that seems to me so counterintuitive to being human, to, um, I guess, thinking, well, we don't necessarily crave nature. Can you speak to that and, and to why there might be a backlash or an academic uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Rejection of mm-hmm. the biophilia hypothesis? Um, yes, in fact, you're right. I have also,
1: you know, come across uh, s- such criticism or critique from academic circles. But for me, as a as a forest therapy guide, I have had to, you know, and as the president of INFTA, I had to kind of look at this and see why that is so. And Really, I'm not really sure why, but all I can say is from my own research into the topic, the biophilia hypothesis is also connect, is connected to two things. Biophilia, which is, as we know, is a term that Edward O. Wilson described, which, which is basically, you know, humanities and our innate affinity to the natural world. But there's also biophobia. And so when we talk about biophilia, we have to also talk about biophobia. And essentially what it means is, as a human race that has, that started evolving 60 million years ago, right? Our species, if you go back in time, that's where we, that's where we started. It was only 200,000 years ago that we evolved as Homo sapiens sapiens, right? But... The biophilia hypothesis at its very core is about us evolving in natural environments and in particular forests and having to read the land, survey the land and our surroundings. How do we survive? What do we eat? What are the dangers? So biophilia is basically us evolving and trying to survive and trying to thrive and trying to to reproduce and continue the species in in relationship with nature because if we were unable to read the land and decide what is helpful in terms of food and which is what is harmful in terms of poisonous snakes or animals we we had to read the land and this is this is part of our very dna so that's how I understand biophilia. Yes, we love nature, but it's also because we needed to be in connection with nature and understand nature, and how we can work in a. It's it's almost a symbiotic relationship that we need that we evolved because of. That actually makes makes it very important that we understand biophilia and biophobia as two 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 pathways to the human evolution and today when we talk about biophilia hypothesis and the biophilia theory it is informing how we are now looking at bringing biophilia into urban spaces because when we are removed from nature it affects our health both our mental health and our physical health and if we remove what is innately part of us as a human as a human race if we take that away from us, we begin to not see. We, we are losing touch with what helped us to evolve. And when you take those elements away, when you when you cut down trees to build housing estates, when you dry rivers, you're taking away a source of water. So immediately, the body responds, the mind responds, and it causes stress. So, you know, this hypothesis has come now deep down and, and talk about covid and what it has done to us i think we spoke about this earlier on before we started the podcast covid has really got people outside because we there was nowhere else to go we, we the distractions of our modern day life have been taken away but in that in that recognition of all right if this is all we have we have two hours of exercise outside people are reflecting back and saying to, saying to us as guides and as to me as the president of this organization that they have absolutely enjoyed it they have discovered little pockets of green in their own neighborhoods which they hadn't been before they're coming to they're going out together as a family with their pets with their children and really feeling the benefits of this nature connection So to bring it back to biophilia hypothesis, yes, it is our very nature as a species that speaks to this hypothesis, that we need to be in close contact with
0: nature. I want to swing back to what you're talking about with regards to if we lose our connection with nature, we become unwell as a species and and even individually. There's a term nature deficit disorder that was proposed by uh, journalist Richard Louv in 2005 to describe specifically the ill effects of people's separation from nature. He argued that the human cost of alienation from nature is, quote, measured in diminished use of the senses, attention difficulties, and higher rates of physical and emotional illness. The results of that disconnection from nature are so evident in this modern world and I think that most of us would agree that we can count ourselves part of that affected population even if we are trying to you know stay stay close or get closer to nature can you talk to me about how nature deficit disorder is showing up in our population and in your opinion is there a viable way out without having to go and live off the grid in a forest for example yes um Richard Louv, he's he's one of my most favorite
1: people. He, I would say he kind of he he brought this whole aspect of nature connectedness into in, into the modern world, let's say, and especially when his first book, uh, you know, Lost Child. So I think that was one of his first book, Last Child. Sorry, Last Child in the Woods.
0: I'm gonna have to look that one up because that. I love the name of that title if that's what it is I have to put that on my list
1: yeah last child in the woods yeah it was it was his first book to in uh, to bring together the new and growing uh, research uh, body of research indicating about what we know as now the nature deficit disorder and I would like this quote um if you if you can put it into the podcast and it goes like this the future will belong to the nature smart those individuals, families, businesses, and political leaders who develop a deeper understanding of the transformative power of the natural world and who balance the virtual with the real. The more high-tech we become, the more nature we need. And that, you know, Richard's cry, and I've heard recently that he's even talked at a conference saying that, you know, despite his very early plea, to get children off nature of off technology and into nature he feels that we have still a long way to go and especially when you think about how kids these days are homeschooling and are constantly behind you know not in a classroom with their children they are missing that connection with other other children right? In their classroom, their teacher, that, that human contact is so important. And that's been taken away from us. So he he's kind of almost saying, oh my gosh, it seems like what I've said is, I've got to go back and sort of re-emphasize this need for kids to, now that we're even more immersed in technology, please balance that off with getting the kids outside. You know, and even what Richard's saying and everyone's saying goes back to that, you know, that innate need that we need that we have as a, as as human beings to be in in regular contact with nature you've seen how gardening has exploded here just here in australia you know everyone's going out and buying plants and filling their houses with with plants and because you know we need to have that nature that connection with nature so richard louve Lou had you know he had this this amazing idea and He continues to speak for this, this need for us to stay and be nature-connected. I follow him on, and for your listeners, I would strongly encourage that you follow him. He's even written another book about about children and how they need to be actually connected to wild spaces. He's even taken it one step further and talking about our need to connect with wild nature and animals because he he has... Realize, I think over the last decade or so, how important it is for us to also connect with animals, listen to birds. Uh, that connection is really very important for us as well.
0: Mm, I love that. It's ironic to me, Susan, that we've come to a place in history where we now have to coin terms like forest bathing, which should actually be instinctual practices, and don't you know, don't even necessarily need a phrase to describe them. They should be sort of innate in our, in our, um, I guess, in our natural practices. Um, and the fact that we have to advise people to slow down and work less. Even to the point where doctors are being encouraged towards what's called social prescribing, which describes the prescribing of non-medical interventions like exercise and meditation and social groups, we seem to have lost the ability to just be human and be connected to the earth um, and connected in a real way to each other like you just mentioned. We consider ourselves to be a progressive society and yet I feel like we've actually regressed in the most important of ways. What's your thoughts around that?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, I agree. We have regressed in certain ways. Social prescribing has really become a a really important aspect of preventative health. And why do we need social prescribing? Because it, it just so happens that we have become very dependent on medical interventions, pharmaceutical products. And this has led us down a pathway of dependency. And it has become actually a real economic problem for government. Public health costs are exploding. Social prescribing actually has come into the limelight as a way to address people's needs before they come to that point of needing a pill and here in australia i have had at least two or three discussions with with organisations that have social prescribing as part of their offerings and they have included forest therapy so that's actually a good step because we are helping people to maintain their health to take care of their health to focus on exercise good food and nature connection which i think is a brilliant thing and that's going to actually help us to stay healthier longer rather than waiting to a point we have we have got high blood pressure or we've got a heart condition and then we become reliant on pills so in a way that's i would that for me that means that's a way of saying we have regressed we have we have amazing technology but what do we do when we need nature connection we are you know, quite often we will we will put on an app and listen to mindfulness exercises,
0: <laughs> or or listen to the sounds of a bird or the waves on an app.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So that that for me that's regression. We, we have, technologically we have made. I mean we have, we are we, we have even in the midst of pandemic we had people flying into space, right? So that's that's <laughs> progression. But what's what is it doing to us? You know, in terms of in terms of taking care of our health and well-being. So we have to use our progressiveness to actually understand that there's also a time when there's a limit to depending on technology. It's actually not good for us. We have all the science and evidence to show that that is the case. We actually need to be bold enough to say, hello, it's now time to put down the technology and go outside and spend time in nature with my family. Just be give yourself permission to unplug. You know, there's this there's this wonderful quote that that goes like, you know, anything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes. Yeah. Including you. Because especially now, Liz, we are so we have to, we are working, we're doing we're doing things which you never thought we would have. You know, we could separate work life from home life, from taking care of our kids. This has all merged together, and we are bat- we're having this constant daily battle of, of juggling these, you know, the, the, these demands on our time, and it has an impact, and it will have an impact. You know what we're talking about the pandemic in terms of physical illness. We are still we are still to begin to un- to understand the the repercussions of, of what it's done to how we live our lives. That's going to be a whole new different discussion. If you look at the 10 leading causes of death in the world, it's it's heart disease, it's, it's lung disease, it's uh, stress caused by diabetes. The impact of COVID is going to be on that list, I'm afraid. So this is going to be uh, you know, a really important aspect for us as we talk of ourselves as a progressive society. We have to keep this in mind.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I want to swing back for a second and go back to the specific, I guess, chemistry and biochemistry around forest bathing. For those of us who look carefully and deliberately at what we eat and what we put on our bodies and even the products we use in our homes, Mm -hmm. the term VOCs or volatile organic compounds usually makes us think of harmful emissions from paint or fire retardants that are used on furniture. So some people might be surprised to learn that plants emit VOCs that are actually healing for our bodies. Can you talk about plant VOCs and more specifically about phytoncides in forest air and how they're beneficial to our body and mind? Oh, you've really got me onto my favorite topic. (laughs) 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 Phytoncides,
1: actually, when we go on walks, um, at the start of the walk, sometimes at the start of the walk or midway, the guides would introduce this word, phytoncides. And you know, I, I tell them get get your participants to repeat the word just like we get them to repeat the word shininioku. Get them to repeat the word fight on sides. It's a Greek word which means actually plant killer. Now that doesn't mean it's killing the plant, but it's helping the plant to kill any invading bacteria, viruses, fungi which it considers is going to inhibit or kill kill the plant. So what, it, what these volatile organic compounds are, what plants emanate typically from underneath of their leaves and sometimes in their bark and they float up. So in a way, this is where the term forest bathing came from, when, when, because when we are in a forested environment and the trees are, you know, showering themselves with these volatile organic compounds, when we, when we are in the forest, our immune systems actually respond when we we breathe in these volatile organic compounds. And these volatile organic compounds, and this is well-researched and uh, well-documented, have amazing properties. So they are antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, antiviral, antimicrobial. So they have these amazing properties, which, which actually talks to our immune system, and particularly the natural killer cells. So our natural killer cells is a fantastic way that the, the body is always on a on patrol. These natural killer cells are on patrol in our bodies, constantly looking for things, tumor cells, the start of cancer cells. So how this mechanism works is there's one volatile organic compound phytoncide in particular which is called alpha pinene so alpha pinene is one of those phytoncides that really speaks to our natural killer cells and the science has shown that when we are in a forested environment when we breathe in these volatile organic compounds which have all these wonderful healing properties when we breathe these in our natural killer cells respond and how they respond is that it increases the count. The natural killer cell count actually gets boosted. And once these natural killer cells are boosted, they stay at an elevated level for as long as 30 days. So what the, what King Lee and his research team found out that when they took a group of people into a forest and did forest bathing for the weekend, the natural killer cells... Responded to the alpha pinene in the forested environment, the natural killer cells increased in volume and they stayed at an elevated level. And this boosts our immune system.
0: Isn't that wonderful? That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. It, It just, the way that you're describing this, it feels so much like nature is beckoning. You know, everything is designed for this symbiotic relationship between us and nature. And we may think of the plant does it for themselves, but it's actually nature calling to us, asking for us to connect with it so that the relationship is back and forth and the benefits are back and forth. I just find that awe-inspiring. It is, it is. And there's another
1: mechanism through which, you know, these natural killer cells also has this effect of reducing cortisol levels in our body and by doing that it actually helps the natural killer cells to even work faster so bringing the the, the alpha pinene and the phytoncides actually bring down cortisol levels and that helps to the to really boost this natural killer cell activity as well so it's it was really groundbreaking you know it, it was actually, if you go back to sites, where it really, really, really started way back. It was in the 1930s that an, a Russian scientist, Boris Tolkien, he actually discovered the, the benefits of taking children out in the Soviet Union, in a very polluted city. They found the children were, you know, tuberculosis was very much prevalent. And he start he he discovered the importance and the value of sites and taking children out into forested where the air yeah, is clean and unpolluted and he was the one who really made this breakthrough with phyton size because what they found was when children were taken into forest their tuberculosis uh, symptoms reduced and actually they got they they recovered faster incredible so it was it was that time in the 1930s that the japanese researchers actually went way back into their <laughs> into their uh, books and they said yes that's it let's let's do some some experiments let look let's look at blood samples of people when we take them out in forest therapy and it was quite it was quite a discovery it really did break the mold around the topic of forest therapy
0: it's incredible you know i'm listening to this and i'm thinking this is the exact prescription that we need that there's all of all of the aspects of health that we're struggling with now from the mental health the lack of social connection, the the increased stress levels and the cortisol through to what you're saying about lung conditions and immune system. All of this can actually be attended to by getting back and forest bathing and being in nature. This just seems to me such an obvious prescription at this time of the world, not just in our own lives, but you know, the world could get <laughs> could get back to this and this would this could just make such uh, an important difference in so many people's lives don't you think absolutely
1: absolutely and when you think about it you know in terms of how do we how do we make forest therapy a public health practice given that you know the benefits the benefits are amazing you know it's all documented from reducing your heart rate from regulating your heartbeat from bringing down cortisol from you know there's so many direct and indirect benefits of of forest therapy which are well documented and you know you can read all about this on our website and in terms of an investment what does it take for some of our parks to be designated forest therapy trails forest therapy bases like they do in japan like they do in Korea, because when, when we send the message out there, this speaks very much to, in a post-pandemic world, we want people to understand the importance of what they have discovered for themselves as the healing power of nature in a lockdown. And how can, I, I think this is a very important part for the listeners to understand, is that we really need governments, local councils, parks authorities to speak to us to understand the science and the evidence of this practice and see how we can support communities to continue to hear this messaging and then to provide the infrastructure to get people out there doing this regularly. because forest therapy is not just one walk and it's all fixed. It's a practice like you would go to the gym, like you would go to your yoga studio. You only see those benefits in a cumulative way. So we need to have people encourage communities to continue and and have nature connection as a practice for their health and well-being.
0: Wouldn't that be so good to see governments pay attention to forest bathing as a social prescription and as, you know, to, to encourage us to actually go out, go out to the park, go out to the forest, and as you say, to designate spaces specifically for meandering and. Being slow, I, I would love to live to see the day that happens in Australia, but let's hope, let's hope that with the social change that that is and has to take place, that we see some encouragement in that direction. I, I, I know that people like you are really, um, working hard to make that part of, uh, part of the social structure and mm. part of, part of the way governments think. So yeah, I'm, I'm well behind you on that one. Definitely needed. I love that we can. In Adelaide, for example, I've quite frequently gone to somewhere like Kaipo Forest, which is, um, you know, a man-made forest but still has a lot of the benefits of forest bathing and I certainly feel much recovered after an hour or two meandering through the the pine trees there. I've got quite a few places close to me. I only have to drive for sort of 20 minutes to half an hour to find a beautiful um, space for some forest bathing. What about though for people who are in the middle of well-built up cities, maybe find it really hard to get to wild places or, or places that are really structured for forest bathing? Can we still find beneficial levels of phytoncides in other green spaces like parks or even in our own gardens or even with indoor plants? I would say not really. Um, there's definite
1: benefits of going into nature, natural spaces. Um, with even, but even with limited tree coverage, there are these benefits of some phytoncides, but not as much in a wooded area with a green canopy that, that is the truth that is the truth having said that i would i would still if you can't get and, and this is why we are doing the say, the the forest therapy and nature therapy sessions in the two botanic gardens because even though most of the gardens can be you know quite an open space beside a lake um, you know wide green spaces of grass and lawn we still have little pockets and i would say One of the the really nice places that I particularly love is the Fern Gully at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. It really is a a rainforest setting. It's got the sound of the water. It's got this amazing canopy of mixed trees. So it's all Australian trees. So it's, you know, the tall tree ferns. It's uh, cowrie trees even from Queensland. So there's this mix and that's actually the best the best environment for forest bathing, for the maximum effect of phytoncides, is to have a mixed variety of of trees. Okay. And so, yes and no, it all depends. So if you can get yourself to a really green space with lots of tall trees and canopy, and there's another thing, you know, there's there's also the forest, and I mean there's also the phytoncides, but there's also this concept, a Japanese concept, which I'm sure you're your your listeners would love to listen to hear and to maybe even repeat after me it's called komorebi komorebi is the japanese word for the sunlight filtering through the treetops beautiful so another exercise that we do as forest therapy guides is we get people to stop it's not always walking stopping and looking up into the canopy and there's science and evidence to show the benefits of looking up because we're always looking down mm. or we're always looking at our feet when we're walking fast. Just look up. And in looking up in a canopy or even breathing more of those phyton sides. So, to go back to your question yes, there are still benefits of being out in nature in an open, welcoming space. But in terms of the phyton sides, nothing beats. A forested environment. And it goes back to what I said earlier as well, Liz. This is where decision makers, whether it's government, policy, uh our you know, our leaders, our future leaders, they have to really preserve what we have in terms of our old growth forests, in terms of our forest around urban cities, protect protect these 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 spaces they are vitally important to our health and well-being.
0: Yeah. So what I hear you saying is, it's not the same to knock down an old, ancient forest or a, a variety of uh, natural habitat and start again and just plant a bunch of same trees. It's not the same. It's not the same wellness effect on our bodies or minds.
1: No. 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 And it's not. It's not only for our bodies and minds. It's not good for the health of the planet, of yeah. all the beings on the planet, you know. Forest therapy really encourages us to understand reciprocal relationship. We need to protect living beings, whether they be trees, insects, butterflies or wild animals, you know. We, we are talk. it's a symbiotic relationship and we need to really, really preserve that. We can't just replace and have that same, and expect to have that same effect on the land and the people.
0: Mm, so much to think about. I'd be really surprised too if anybody listening <laughs> to this podcast has already not mapped out in their mind where they're going to go on the weekend to <laughs> to immerse themselves in a forest. I just, I just feel as we're talking, I just feel such a strong pull. Um, You know, I'm quite um, aware of the benefits of nature and being a nutritionist as well. You know, I understand about getting back to nature and really understanding how the body works and so on, but I still think everything becomes so, I don't know, overanalyzed and overly measured and still we find ourselves giving advice from behind a screen as opposed to Getting back and doing the things that our bodies really need. So it's definitely inspiring for me, and I'm sure lots of other people. I just wanted to ask a question about guided forest therapy and um, how that differs from just taking a meander through uh, a forest or a green space ourselves.
1: Mm. That, that's a question we get a lot, and it is a good question, especially now in our hectic lifestyles, in our individual minded world in which we live, a guided forest therapy walk really does shift our attention from within ourselves to the outside world and to the people who come along on the forest therapy walk. And very recently, actually, there's a research paper that came out from Korea where they did uh, a study on two groups of people. One of them who they, they just tell, told people, okay, off you go on a walk, no guide. And the other group, let's go with a guide. And when they came back and analyzed uh, the responses, it was very clear that a guided walk helped people to slow down, to really get the benefits of a sensory connection of nature using all senses and also a sense of community. Yeah. So those, those three... Uh, aspects you know stood out but in terms of a guided walk look our guides go through a six-month mentored practicum they study the research they practice their walks over and over again and the guides choose a trail they choose activities in partnership with nature so when I'm what I mean by in partnership with nature is they really look at the features of of that is offered on this forest therapy trail, they they consider the the time of day, they consider the seasons, and so they really curate, they really curate the activities to get people to really help people to that in that slowing down process and matching the group of people to the forest therapy trail and to the activities so that it leaves people. Thing, you know it, it leaves us to be free of our minds. Oh what shall I do now? How do I connect? The guide really takes all that away from you. that anxiety about what do I do now? I'm here. What do I do? You know, if you go out, you wouldn't know what to do, really. Yeah, especially if you're
0: retraining yourself, because if we're if we're so engaged exactly. in technology, we don't really know how to connect to nature in the way that it it, it should be natural. But it's mm. not necessary. It's it's unlearned, I suppose, because of our connection to technology all the time.
1: Exactly. So so the guide really helps you in that process. He or she, like people will say, I, I I can't slow down. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was so. It takes about a good forty minutes to an hour for people who start the forest therapy walk to then begin to slow down and notice it within themselves. Wow, this feels so wonderful. Another word that comes out at the end of a forest is timelessness. They really feel this aspect of timelessness. Or I've. I have passed, I have walked through this trail several times, but oh my goodness, it's for the first time that I really slowed down and I I touched a leaf. I noticed a bug. I I I saw a tree fond and it it just drew me in. I, I can't I can't believe I haven't done this before. Why haven't I done this before? Yeah. So, you know, there's there's that aspect of this, you know, helping people with their sensory perception. There's also aspect of safety, and some people who are really not that nature connected or haven't been out in nature, there's somehow, you know, speaking back to what we spoke about earlier, biophobia, some people are, you know, probably we're so busy and so technologically connected, we have really forgotten even how, or even a little bit anxious about going outside and touching nature, so the guide really takes that, you know, manages that for you as well.
0: Sounds to me a good uh, alternative to, uh, you know, often if we're busy, stressed out, working, you know, especially business people or people just with a lot on their plate, we often think, oh, I need to go get a massage. But it just makes me think, take that hour and go go do some forest bathing, get a, do a guided therapy walk. Or for somebody who you know birthday's coming up and you always get them a massage voucher, find somewhere where they can do um, a guided forest therapy walk. That to me sounds like it's going to have a lot more longevity on the system than a one-hour massage. Yes, though I do love a massage. Yeah, me too. Have both. Have both, (laughs) both? exactly. (laughs) I was interested to learn about how forest bathing can help to combat loneliness. Can you talk to me about how that works? Yes. Um, Actually, in
1: preparation for this podcast, I went and looked up uh, some of the recent studies that have been done and now um, especially, you know, people are really looking at, researchers are really looking at it from, through the lens of COVID. And they are we're now calling it, health officials are now calling it an epidemic of loneliness. You know, social isolation, a lack of meaningful interaction with other people is on the rise. You know, there's been a, a recent uh, study, a generational study in the U.S. where uh, they looked at 20,000 U.S. adults. On a UCLA loneliness scale, can you imagine? There's now a, a loneliness scale, which is an academic measure of social isolation, and it's determined by a questionnaire. And what they found was that, uh, moving forward in age, from the greatest generation to great to Generation Z, each age bracket feels progressively more isolated. Mm. Another really interesting a research article that came out in 2021 from the University of Bulongong. They did a longitudinal study, uh, which has just been published in the International Journal of Epidemiology and finds that adults in neighborhoods where at least 30% of nearby lands are parks, reserves, and woodlands had a 26% lower odds of becoming lonely compared to others who had, you know, 10% less green space. And for people living on their own, the associations were even greater in areas with 30% or more green space. The odds of becoming lonely halved. Wow. So there's another study that was done in San Diego University found that U.S. uh, adolescents who spend time in front of screens and and less time in face-to-face socializing are more vulnerable to depression and suicide. So for your readers who want to to have a read you know that that loneliness uh, study from uh, Wollongong was really quite revealing yeah, and again it you know for me it speaks about you know sitting in in my position in the organization you know we can we can talk and we can discuss you know all the benefits and what we should do, but we really need policy Liz. we really need the policy to support what we do whether it's Forest therapy as part of a social prescribing practice. You know, these what we are what we are learning from this research and this study is that it is an epidemic of loneliness. And green spaces, you know, is 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 sort of an open, welcoming, non-judgmental space. And if we are if we are living in these lonely in, in in you know little little apartments by ourselves and we look outside and there's really not that much green space you see where i'm going
0: yeah
1: right it's reducing loneliness has you know all these impacts on health and you know there's increasing evidence we are which links lonely to increased risk of depression heart disease inflammation dementia and people you know there was a study done which showed that if people live longer in green spaces it reduces the onset of dementia, and we are living longer lives these days. But do we want to live longer and lonelier lives?
0: That's right.
1: Right. We 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 are a species that thrives on communication, on being with other. You know, in this, uh, you know, we 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 also refer to this as lean on green. We lean on trees. We lean on nature, on Mother Nature. Why do we call her Mother Nature? It's a nurturing space. It's, a, you know, and even if you're lonely and you have, you know, you are socially, you have social anxiety about meeting other people. There's also, you know, little, a few studies done that for people like that, a non-judgmental, supportive environment of a, of a botanic gardens, you know, makes people want to go out and you know, gives them, a, you know, some kind of
0: happiness, a solace, solace. It just makes me think how strong the concept is of we are all connected, not just to one another, but to nature. And being in a space that's essentially built for us and built from the same material that we are, there's a real strong sense of connection. So even if there isn't the connection to people, if you have that strong sense of being connected to something greater, like to nature... That in itself is, um, I guess, not a cure for loneliness, but certainly something that helps us to feel less lonely. And a word that keeps coming up in my life lately is the word codependent. I think we have spoken so much as a society um, about the need to be independent, especially as women, mm. you know, this need to be independent, independent all the time. And we have, there's terms that we reject now, like we don't want to be dependent and we don't want to be codependent, but the word that keeps, sorry, uh, yeah, codependent, but the word that keeps coming up lately I've been hearing is the the term interdependent and i think that's that's also really key which is all part of this getting back to nature but also getting back to one another it's our need to be interdependent because we're not built to be isolated neither from one another nor from nature so the need for interdependence i think needs to be acknowledged a little more indeed
1: you know it, you know as a species we thrived we evolved in a community. In, in a, it also speaks to what we have what I said earlier about loneliness. You know, we we are dependent on each other, we are dependent on nature. It's a symbiotic relationship, whether it's our relationship with nature or with each other. You know, it's a healing space as well. Um, and when we bring people out into forest therapy walks, into forest therapy sessions, you will see how this really pans out. At the end of the two or three hour session, we we finish off with a tea ceremony. People are lying on their backs on the lawn, sharing a cup of warm tea. And and it's at this time that we really begin to see how social cohesion, social relationships are beginning to form. And some people even share phone numbers with each other because This opportunity that they have given themselves. They have all bought a ticket to be there. They 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 want to hang on to this feeling, you know, and it's just wonderful to witness it. And nothing beats this depend this, you know, this we're leaning on each other as a society on over a cup of warm bush tea. It's amazing. I can tell you, Liz, it's and some of the guides tell me, you know, Susan, after two to three hours, people don't want to leave. They're like (laughs) chatting with each other they might ask a question about the science but it's like people are communicating they're looking into each other's eyes and now take this in a post pandemic world when we have lost this ability to look at each other without our face masks on yeah you know it's it's i'm really interested in seeing in to see how we we practice forest therapy now and what the the uptake is going to be we've already had bookings for 2022 yeah (laughs) right because (laughs) people people and and i think forest therapy is going to be this bridge between the where we are now and helping people transition from this time of lockdown into the new way of being with nature with each other
0: susan this has been such an inspiring conversation and i i feel like i want to listen to it over and over i think there's so much content in here that's inspiring and um, it just shifts my perspective and hopefully it shifts the perspective of a lot of people. I'm 100% on board with what you're doing with with forest therapy and uh, yeah, I just thank you so much for what you've shared today. I just want to lastly ask um, if people want to know more about uh, finding guided forest therapy in their local area and maybe looking at some more resources, where can they go to to find that information?
1: Um, good question, thanks for asking. And I um, I would recommend people go to um, our website, which is infta.net. So there's a top there's a tab for research. So all of what I'm talking about in terms of you know the validity of what we do and how we do it and the benefits, you can get all the research there. And in terms of finding a guide, if you go on to our map, there's a map locator of the guides where each of us practices and our locations, you will find it on the map. And if you click through, you will be able to go to each of the guides' website with their contact details. If you live in a bigger city like Melbourne and um, New South, in Victoria, New South Wales, if you go to the uh, website of the two botanic gardens, that's the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney, Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne, Robert uh, Botanic Gardens Cranberg, Cranbourne, and we also have a guide in Western Australia at the Kings Park, Western Australia, Perth, and we have other guides as well who have run their own businesses, uh, whether they be counselors or occupational therapists, they've all incorporated forest therapy, so you'll find that on the guide locator map, the global network, it's called INFDA's Global Network, you'll find it there.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing with us today, Susan. It's been really eye-opening. I so appreciate it.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Unconscious is presented by One Seed. Find out more at oneseedperfumes.com. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and share us with your friends so we can all live a little more consciously.